When I was in the seventh grade, I had been playing the piano for seven years. I had been in choirs for seven years, but in the seventh grade, I made a switch. I decided to join the junior high school band and they needed a trombone player. I'd love to show you this image of me playing the trombone when I was in the seventh grade with my rockin', you know, bowl cut from the 80s, some leisure pants, and I have no idea why I thought that green matched with that blue, but that's who I was in the seventh grade, and I'll never forget what it was like to be a part of that ensemble. Maybe the first time in my life I understood what a saint was. A saint was Mr. Fletcher, our band instructor. I have no idea how he put up with the racket that we made each and every day. I mean, you could see he was one of those guys that would play with us and he would play with his inner Kenny G because this was the 1980s. He would play his soprano saxophone and either he was closing his eyes while he played to kind of picture that he was in a great nightclub somewhere or he was closing his eyes because he was in so much pain and he was afraid that he was going to cry at the sound that we were making. We played such important sacred classic hits like she works hard for the money, and easy lover, 25, six to four, and most importantly, the theme to St. Elmo's Fire. If you're a child of the 80s, you say an amen right now, and you know exactly what I am talking about. I don't remember a lot about band, but I remember this one particular day. It was this one day where we were getting close to the end of the semester and what our spring concert was going to be. And we had practiced all the songs and we had learned all the notes and the melodies. We had learned how to tune our instruments. And we were playing on this one day. And I remember Mr. Fletcher made us stop and he put his head in his hands up at the front of the room. And, and I was just sitting there thinking, OK, this is the moment where he's going to lose it. And he sighed and he looked at us and he says, guys, you, you know the music, you know the notes, you know the tunes, but the difference between making music and making noise is playing together. I'll never forget when he said that because we weren't playing together. I wonder if you think about our society right now, of whether we feel like we're making more noise or whether we're making music. How are we doing as a community, as a church, as a nation, as a world, in playing together? We're not the first people to struggle with this. It might feel like it at times, but we have been struggling with this for a long, long time. In fact, during the time of the Bible, there was a particular group of people known as the Corinthians. And that group of people were a divided and decadent group to which the Apostle Paul wrote words that feel like they could have been written to us for today. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed all the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted it to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are of less honor, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, though our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, You are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. Isn't that a compelling vision? A vision of no division. That there would be no division in the body. What would it be like for you to be living with a family where there was no division in your family? What would it be like for you to be living in a relationship where there was no division in that relationship? What would it be like for us to be a part of neighborhoods and cities and a part of a nation where there was no division? What would it be like to be a part of a church where there was no division in that church. Paul gives us a vision of no division. And he does so by saying that there's this image that he wants to gather around, this image of being a body. Now, one of the things that's interesting for us is that we kind of revere our bodies. We uh, take care of our bodies. We're the kind of people that maybe even worship our bodies. You need to know that in the context in which this was written, that was not how the Greeks viewed the body. They saw the body as kind of a disposable container of your soul. And so like these Greek statues that are the Elgin marbles, you know, the, 
these are incredible works of art. They, they paid particular attention to the body and they thought the body was fantastic if it could be beaten into submission for um, whether it was art or whether it was for physical combat or sport, but they didn't have a high view of their body. And in addition to that, Paul not only brings an image that would have been controversial in that day and age, in addition to that, Paul starts the speeches coming from a lowly foot. Now, there might be many of you that don't like feet today, but systematically in that moment in time, a scholar by the name of Ken Bailey, who did a lot of work on this, discovered that the word foot was basically a four-letter word. He writes it like this. He says, when Saddam Hussein's statue was pulled to the ground in Baghdad in 2003, many of the Iraqis present beat on the statue with their shoes. In February of 2011, Egyptians in Cairo held up their shoes as a sign of their total rejection of then-President Mubarak. Ethiopian Orthodox Christians removed their shoes outside the door of the church as they enter. Across the Arabic-speaking Middle East, the very words foot and shoes are four-letter words. A speaker must apologize to an audience before pronouncing them. It is not by accident that Paul opens his parable with a speech given by an unclean foot. And so we need to understand as we enter into this story, this text, that this would have been a shocking and provocative image of a body. And so how do we get to a place of no division? How can we be a kind of people that make music? The Apostle Paul says that we need to do three things. We need to see the parts and not just the whole. We need to see the whole and not just the parts. And then we got to do our part to make things whole. In other words, when we're focusing on the parts, we need to not confuse uniformity with unity. When we're thinking about the whole, we need to not confuse individuality with diversity. And when we're talking about doing your part, we need to not confuse sympathy with solidarity. And so let's start first by talking about what does it mean to see the parts and not just the whole, to not confuse uniformity with unity. One of the many lines that the Apostle Paul says in this text, he says, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Back when Kelly and I were pregnant with our first child, uh, we received a gift. It was this book I want to put up on the screen. It's called The Pregnancy Journal. And in this, you could chronicle your own reflections and thoughts. Kelly and I would read this faithfully every day. And one of the great things about this journal is that it provided you kind of a day-by-day account of what was happening inside the womb. And my head exploded as we went through this journey together. It was like, oh my gosh! My girl got fingernails today. I would go to the office and I would proclaim to anybody who would hear me, my daughter has fingernails today. We talk about all the different parts of the body that, that you were looking for and, and they would talk about how those things miraculously happened through the wonder that is the gift of birth. I am sure the people at the office were so annoyed with me about talking about all the different parts of a little baby girl that was to be born for us. 
But here's the deal. I didn't understand the wonder and the joy of the whole of a child until I understood the intricacy and the beauty of the diversity of all of its parts. In other words, the Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. God doesn't make mistakes. And God has fashioned our bodies in fearful and wonderful ways. And you won't fully appreciate the gift of life until you understand the plurality of all the different ways that God has fashioned you and me. You see, this is where we can truly know something about God. God loves diversity. And a lot of the times when we talk about unity, we confuse unity with conformity or with uniformity. God's not in the sameness business. God's in the business of taking the wonder of all that he has made and pulling it together as one. As a friend of mine said, it's unified diversity. That's what makes beautiful music. And on this day where we celebrate Pentecost, we recognize that the church originally came together when the Spirit of God was given to the church and it brought in the fresh wind of people speaking in their own languages, but they had a common understanding. You see, unlike a lot of religions which obliterate culture and take over culture and get rid of culture, one of the things that Christianity honors is the distinctiveness of all the different races and ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds of what God has given to us. And those things get redeemed and renewed in the vision of understanding all the different parts that are necessary to come to make one. So the first step towards a vision of no division and making music is being able to see the parts and not just the whole. The second phase is to see the whole and not just the parts. In other words, we've got to have a vision for diversity beyond an individuality. The way that the Apostle Paul talks about this is that he gives voice to the fact that there are many parts, but there is only one body. And in lifting up the voices of the body, he, they each give these different speeches. There are speeches on the one side that say, I don't belong. It's a speech of insecurity. And then there's another speech that's given by saying, I don't need you. It's a speech of superiority. One mindset is one where I'm not good enough. The other mindset says, you're not good enough. Sometimes when I'm doing counseling in my office where I'm talking about relationships, sometimes when the relationship is fractured, I'll actually pull this out on the whiteboard and put these two speeches. We'll read 1 Corinthians 12, and I'll put on the one side, I don't need you, and on the other side, I don't belong. And we'll talk about how superiority and inferiority actually destroy relationships. 
if you have an insecure attachment, if you think that you're better than someone else, the relationship cannot ultimately survive. You have to get past inferiority and insecurity and superiority to get to what Christians we call humility. We have to recognize that love comes from when you put the other's needs before your own. And if you're stuck in the selfishness of either your own insecurity or your own superiority, the relationship does not have enough oxygen in order to be able to thrive. And so one of the things that I've discovered in helping to guide couples, but even for myself in my own relationship, is that if I'm operating out of insecurity or if I'm operating out of superiority, I won't be able to love. And so the first thing that we're going to need to be able to do in order to make music, in order for things to really come together, is we're going to have to see the parts and not just the whole, but we're going to have to also see the whole and not just the parts. But finally, we're going to have to do your part to make things whole. As Claude Alexander says, don't confuse sympathy with solidarity. Claude's a wonderful African-American pastor in the Charlotte area where I learned this phrase was from listening to a sermon by him where he was talking about the wonderful gift that is the story of the Good Samaritan and how people may have walked by on the other side of the road and like in this piece of art, maybe they hung their head high and didn't even look or maybe they looked out of the corner of their eye and felt some sort of sympathy. But it was only the Good Samaritan who drew close, who drew near, who identified with and loved the other, who was a true neighbor. Until we get to the point where we recognize, as the Apostle Paul said, that each part is to have equal concern for the other. We'll just paint over what's going on right now with simple platitudes, posts, cards, a few acts of kindness or outrage, but we'll not make any change. Several years ago, I was preaching at an organization that had a gathering of all their different chapters. It's one of my favorite ministries in Southern California called Teen Challenge. It's a drug and alcohol rehab program for young people. And a couple of times a year, they pull together all the different chapters of the residential discipleship programs that they have. And they get about three or 400 together of them under a big tent. And they have kind of an old-fashioned all-day revival. It's one of my favorite preaching moments ever because it's like throwing a match in a, in a room full of kerosene. It just sets a blaze. And so I remember when I had finished preaching one time and the band came back up to lead the last section of the worship, I noticed that I was walking towards the back of the room that there was a man who didn't look like that he belonged, partially because of his age. 
He was a little older than I was, and most of the people in the room were young people. And so I went over to him and, and asked him who he was and what he was doing there. He pointed towards the front of the room to a young woman, and he said, do you see that girl right there? I said, you mean the one with the blonde hair on the right? He said, yes. He said, that's my daughter. And when I can, I come and I'm near. She may not want anything to do with me and that's okay. But I want to be close to pray for her and to show her in every way that I am with her for her recovery. That's my daughter, he said. I looked at the girl more closely and I realized that she was just a handful of years older than my oldest daughter. And I couldn't imagine what it was like for her to be struggling with a life debilitating addiction. And so I asked the man, do you mind if I just sit next to you and pray quietly for you and for your daughter? And he said, there isn't anything that I would want more. And so I sat. And so I prayed. But that's my daughter, he said. I know it's a minefield of emotion and difficulty, but we need to talk about George Floyd. And I want to show you a picture of his family. And I don't want to talk about it politically, I want to talk about it theologically. That man was somebody's son. He was a family member. He was a friend. And in addition to that, what we believe is that he was a child of God. And until we get to the point where we recognize that God says, but that's my son, that's my daughter, we will never, ever grow through these conflicts. We won't be able to shout our way through it. Righteous indignation won't get us through it. Rioting and looting will not get us through this. It is appropriate to use your voice. It is appropriate to peacefully protest. But maybe most important for us in and through Peachtree is there has to come a point where we make the switch of getting beyond sympathy to solidarity. That we are with our African-American brothers and sisters because we are all a part of one family, one body. If one part suffers, 
every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. A couple of years ago, I got to meet these two gentlemen. This is Kyle and Brent Peace, and they are a remarkable team. And Kyle is an elite athlete because of his brother. They discovered a new depth of their friendship through their tragedy, with Kyle not being able to move as a quadriplegic. But they discovered what it was like to be in solidarity together as they started to train for triathlons. It all started with a brother shaving another brother who needed help. And it grew into the depth of a training regimen that makes me look like somebody who doesn't even work out. They did the Ironman in Kona. And in doing so, you need to realize that that's a marathon of running. It is over two miles of swimming in open water. And it's also a 111 mile bike ride, all the while pushing, pulling, and carrying Kyle. In the Q&A, there was a woman who asked a question, you know, basically like, how hard is it? And Brent said, he's not heavy. He's my brother. He's not heavy. He's my brother. Until we're able to see with the eyes of faith, And to realize that you can't overcome evil with evil, but only can overcome evil with good. We're just going to make a bunch of noise. But we're not going to make any music. We got to learn to play together. 1 Corinthians 12 comes right up into 1 Corinthians 13. And at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of mortals of an angels but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, without love, we will just make a whole bunch of racket and we may be playing a whole bunch of notes and we may have really good intentions with the instruments that we have picked up, but we will not be making music. We've got to be able to come together to play and that will require diversity unity, and solidarity. It'll take all three. Paul gives us a vision of no division. And it could be the most beautiful song that's ever been made. Will you pray with me? Our loving Father, our hearts are broken at the division that is this world. 
and our hearts need to be broken for the years of injustice and hurt and pain that we have inflicted on one another and your creation. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see the parts and not just the whole. Help us to recognize the beauty that is found in diversity. And then, Father, help us to not just see the parts, but to see the whole, to have a vision of what it means to get beyond insecurity and superiority and to the humility of what it means to come together. And most of all, Father, get us beyond sympathy to solidarity. Help me, help each and every one of us to do our part to make things whole. I thank you for the visible symbol of that of, in Atlanta, of women and men who woke up on a Saturday morning and said, let's go clean up armed with brooms and with trash cans to pick up the pieces quietly without a hero's welcome to begin to mend and to try to put back the body of Christ. Lord, we are your community. We belong to you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.